Good morning. It's great to be with you today. My name is Pastor Scott, and what a privilege it is to open God's Word with you this morning and share. Today, we're going to be talking about Andrew, one of the disciples, and how he was always introducing people to Jesus. We'll be looking at the Gospel of John chapter 1 today, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your devices so that you're ready to go. Let me first of all start by giving credit where credit is due, because much of what I am going to be sharing with you this morning are things that I have learned by reading a book called Tell Someone by Greg Laurie. There's a man in the Bible that most of us are very familiar with, and his name is Simon Peter. Although there were 12 disciples, Peter was that take-charge kind of guy who was always the one who was among the leaders of that group. In today's terms, we would call him a leader of leaders. He is mentioned first in every listing of the 12 disciples, and along with James and John, he was one of Jesus' closest friends, somebody that we would call his part of his inner circle. He was with Jesus when they went up onto the mountain where Jesus showed himself to Peter, James, and John in all his glory, an event that we call the transfiguration. As you read the Gospels, you see Peter asking Jesus questions when the other disciples were quiet. We see see Peter giving Jesus unsolicited advice, not something I recommend, by the way. As you read the Gospels, you see Peter boldly jumping into the Sea of Galilee when the rest of the disciples were content to stay on the boat and just watch. We see Peter verbally affirming his conviction that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. We see Peter expressing that he was willing to die for Jesus. And on the night of his crucifixion, Peter pulled out his sword and was ready to defend Jesus, something that none of the other disciples were willing to do, even though it became quite apparent that Peter had never been trained how to use a sword. While Peter's eagerness led him to go far too far sometimes, his enthusiasm I find to be appealing and even compelling. But Peter was more than just a super enthusiastic personality. He was respected by the other other disciples, and they accepted him as their leader. After the resurrection, Peter became the spokesman for the remaining disciples, preaching the first evangelistic sermons that we find in the book of Acts. Peter showed great courage before the Sanhedrin and confronted the Jewish Christians who objected to his preaching at the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius. He is the one that Paul, before he was an apostle, went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with the leaders of the Christian movement. Also, Peter wrote two letters that we have in our Bible, First and Second Peter, and he is mentioned by name 153 times in the New Testament. Certainly, Peter had his faults and made some big mistakes, but all in all, he was a great man of faith and someone to be admired for his devotion and service to the Lord. So you're probably wondering, you told us you're going to talk to us about Andrew. Why are you doing your whole introduction about a man named Simon, Simon Peter? Well, I'm doing that uh, in order to lead up to a question that will be answered by our reading in the Gospel of John. And that question is simply this. Do you remember who introduced Peter to Jesus? It was his brother, Andrew. So let's read now from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. 
The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, not John the disciple. So the next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of the God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now that doesn't mean 10 a.m. like we would assume it does. It means it was ten hours after sunrise. One of the two who had heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the fact that for all we know and admire about the Apostle Peter, we really know very little from Scripture about his brother Andrew, especially considering that it was Andrew who introduced Peter to Jesus. In the first chapter of Acts, there is a list of requirements to become an apostle. They had to be men that were part of Jesus' earthly ministry from the time that he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist, And they also had to be witnesses to the resurrected Lord. So from the very beginning to the glorious end of his earthly ministry, we know from the Gospel of John that Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples before becoming the disciple of Jesus. We also know that John the Baptist had come to prepare people for the Lord. And so that means several things. I believe it means that John the Baptist had already prepared Andrew and others to take up their walk with the Messiah. And when Andrew went to Peter and said, we have found the Messiah, the suggestion is that they had been eagerly waiting for the coming of the Messiah, something they would have only been doing if they had been prepared. Otherwise, Peter's response would have been, so? This morning, let's take a look at what this man Andrew, uh, his example leads us to. He's only mentioned in 12 verses in the Bible. And most of those, or many of those, are just lists of the disciples. Now, remember, Peter's name is mentioned 153 times. But Andrew was a man who had a very unique experience that none of us will ever know, is that he was able to walk and talk with the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was able to sit by his side and hear him teach and talk and tell parables and stories. He was in the presence of Jesus as he turned water into wine and fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, as he brought Lazarus back to life and restored sight to the blind man, and so many more miracles. Andrew was a man of privilege because he was among the first to encounter Jesus and to watch the Messiah move from his baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River and into his earthly ministry. He saw it all, even to the day that Jesus ascended into heaven and told his disciples to get busy with his work, something that we call the Great Commission. Before following Jesus, Andrew was in partnership with his brother in the fishing business, and he was probably quite successful at it as well. Knowing these things, the question arises in my mind is maybe something that you're wondering as well this morning. 
what would lead a man like that to give up everything that he had and live as one of Jesus' disciples? A disciple that really is virtually unknown. What would lead a man to leave his home, his job, his security, and his future to follow Jesus? Let's start with the results of an encounter with Jesus, and then we'll talk about how to have an encounter with Jesus. When we look at John the Baptist, we see that his encounter with Jesus produced these results. Self-denial, a servant's heart, and absolute surrender. Andrew had those same three characteristics, and hopefully that's true of you and me. But let me tell you another characteristic of having an encounter with Jesus. A genuine encounter with Jesus will produce a desire to tell others. Look again at verses 40 and 41. One of the two was Andrew. He first found his own brother Andrew and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Jesus didn't have to tell Andrew to go and do this, and he certainly didn't use guilt to motivate Andrew. When Andrew encountered Jesus, he went and got his brother immediately and told him. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 7, and it's a fascinating story, and I encourage you sometime soon to read that. But this morning, let me just summarize it for you. The people of Samaria were surrounded by the army of Syria, and they'd been under siege for so long, and things had gotten so bad that people were starving to death, and they were actually eating their children. As the story goes on, there were four men who had leprosy uh, who came up with this plan. They were, of course, uh, in quarantine outside of the city because leprosy was such a contagious and deadly disease that that's what God had said. If you have this disease, you have to be removed from everyone. And they knew that if they stayed where they, where they were, quarantined outside the city, that they were going to die. So they decided that they were just going to go over to the Syrian army's camp. They thought that if the army had pity on them, they could eat and live. And if the Syrian army killed them, they really weren't any worse off because they would soon be dead from starvation anyway. So they went to the Syrian camp and found it very quiet. They went inside the first tent that they came to and found that it was empty. Well, empty of people. It was filled with food and with clothing and with silver and gold. And so they ate to their heart's content and they took the spoils and hid them outside the the camp. Then when they went back to a second tent, they found that it was also empty and they repeated that process. What they didn't know was that God had sent noises in in the night like an approaching army. And the Syrian army heard this, and they fled in fear, leaving everything behind. Those four leprous men, although grateful for the food, they decided that it would be wrong for them to keep this incredible news to themselves. And so they went to the town of Samaria and told everyone what they had found so that they could also eat and live. Why am I telling you this story? Those men came across something that was too good to keep to themselves. They had to go and tell someone. They started looting all that gold and silver, and they were eating and drinking themselves silly, and they said, this isn't right. This is a great day, and we have to go and tell somebody. When Andrew spent a day with Jesus, he said to himself, this isn't right to keep this to myself. I've got to tell my brother Peter. When you spend time with the Lord, and when you encounter Jesus, 
you will be compelled to to tell somebody what you have experienced. No one will need to convince you that this is the right thing to do, and no one will need to make you feel guilty for not doing it. And if you and I don't feel compelled to share Christ, the reason is probably because we haven't been spending enough time with the Lord. You don't have to memorize a plan. You don't have to memorize vast portions of the New Testament, although knowing Scripture is very helpful. You don't have to be licensed or ordained in your denomination. All you have to do is spend some time with Jesus and then tell people about your experience. Are you saved? Well, then tell somebody about that experience. Has Jesus met a need in your life? Then tell somebody else who has a need. Has Jesus answered one of your prayers? Then tell somebody else who is praying. People are talking all around you, and they're providing you with many opportunities to tell them about Jesus. What they need is for you and me to spend time with the Lord so that we'll be ready to say something when those opportunities come up. Spending time with Jesus, genuinely encountering Jesus, will produce a natural desire to tell other people what you have experienced. Think about Andrew's life. What do we know about it? He introduced his brother Peter to Jesus. In John chapter 12, we're told that he was one of the disciples that introduced some Greek men to Jesus. He was the disciple who brought the young boy with the fish and the loaves to Jesus so that he could multiply them and miraculously feed the multitude of people. And he was one of the disciples who asked Jesus what the signs of his second coming would be. Outside of that, we really don't know much more from the Bible about this man. So what do these things tell us about Andrew? Andrew was always bringing someone to Jesus. Peter the Greek men, the little boy with a lunchbox. Andrew didn't need to be in the spotlight to be the center of attention. He was content to just follow Jesus and serve him and introduce other people to him. Andrew could have been envious of his brother Peter, who got all the recognition. But instead, he was content to introduce yet another person to the Messiah, the promised one. So how do we tell people about Jesus? This is probably when you're expecting me to give you a a fail-proof five-step plan to leading people to Christ, but I'm not going to do that because it's much much less about a system or a program and much more about a closeness to God. Beginning your day by asking God through prayer to give you opportunities to share your faith. Asking God to open your eyes to see those opportunities when they come. And asking God to give you the courage to say something when those opportunities are presented to you. So what keeps us from sharing? Is it a lack of motivation to not share the good news? Or is it actually a sin to not tell people about Jesus? Well, that sounds harsh, but let me give you an example. If you heard screams coming from your neighbor's house, and you saw the smoke and the flames, and you didn't call 911, and you didn't try to help, Is that wrong, terribly wrong, or was that simply a choice that you made? James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It all starts with concern for people. The great preacher of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, said, The Holy Spirit will move them by moving you first. 
If you can rest without their being saved, they will rest too. But if you are filled with an agony for them, if you cannot bear that they should be lost, you will soon find that they are uneasy too. I hope you will get into such a state that you will dream about your child or about your hearer perishing for lack of Christ and start up at once and begin to cry, Oh God, give me converts or I die. Then you will have converts. End quote. Are you willing to leave your comfort zone and take a small step of faith? Or maybe to painfully and honestly uh, tell God, perhaps admit to yourself, that you don't care as much as you should about people and do, that do not know the Lord. Can you change your calloused heart on your own, or do you need God to move you from self-centered attitudes and to ask God to change us? Why should we share our faith? The answer is really simple, because Jesus told us to. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This wasn't a suggestion. It was a direct order. And the Apostle Paul wrote, So naturally we proclaim Christ. We warn everyone we meet, and we teach everyone we can, all that we know about him, so that if possible, we may bring every man up to his full maturity in Christ. Colossians 1.28 Let me give you an illustration. The first time that I remember trying to tell people about Jesus, I was probably in late elementary school. I grew up in a neighborhood where there were 12 kids that were all about the same age, all within five years of each other. It was really a great way to grow up. Three of those were from Catholic families. One was Jewish. Four were from families that probably went to church just on Christmas and Easter. And then there were four that went to church regularly every Sunday, and two of those were me and my sister. I decided I was going to start a Bible club and that we were going to meet once a week to study the Bible. I was going to be the teacher, and I thought that I would just do what I saw my pastor doing, teach expository lessons. Now, all that means is that you go to a book of the Bible, and you start at chapter 1, verse 1, and you work your way through verse by verse until you get to the end. I wasn't sure what book to start with, so I thought, well, if I'm going to start with chapter 1, verse 1, I'll start with the first book of the New Testament. And so I studied Matthew chapter 1, and presented my first lesson on Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Let me give you a taste of what I was looking at. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and on and on it goes for 17 verses. All very important verses but not the easiest to interpret when you're 12 years old and haven't been trained on how to do this. It was probably more difficult for me to learn how to say all of those names rather than teach what they meant. And that had to be the driest, most boring Bible lesson ever. The Bible club lasted exactly one week. It was a monumental failure. 
And it was years before I attempted to share again with anyone about my faith. When should I share the gospel? Well, the the Great Commission says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Let me personalize that. Go into all of your world. Go to your family and tell them. Go to your workplace and tell them. Go to your school and tell them. Go to your neighborhood and tell them. God has put you in your family, in your workplace, in your school, and in your neighborhood for a very specific reason. In the book of Esther, the queen's uncle Mordecai told her, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That irritating neighbor, your disagreeable co-worker, and your weird uncle have been put in your life so that you can reach them with a message of the gospel. Now quite often I've heard, and you've probably heard people say this as well, maybe we've even said it, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'll do my best to win people to Christ by by the way I live, but I'm not going to say anything. But Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and be a good example. He said, go into the world and preach the gospel. Now, don't take this out of context and say, Pastor Scott said, I don't have to be a good example, because nothing will ruin a gospel presentation faster than contradicting what we say by the way that we live. You can either be a bridge or a barrier to people coming to know Christ. You will find that you're either one or the other, a bridge or a barrier. Let me confirm something that you've probably long suspected. You're being watched by people who don't follow Christ. They may be wanting you to do something that's inconsistent with what you say, so that they can hide behind the argument, the church is just full of hypocrites. I urge you to defy their expectations. The primary way that God has chosen to reach people is through other people. And the most common way that he does that is through the spoken word, sharing the gospel. Well, where should I share the gospel? I want to uh, tell you a funny story about um, an evangelism event This is from this book that I read. It's Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship. And he was shopping in a mall one day and needed to use the restroom. So once he was seated, he heard a man clear his throat in the stall next to him. Now, they're the only two people in the restroom, but Pastor Greg didn't say anything. And then the man in the stall next to him said, Hi! Can you imagine how uncomfortable that situation would be? But Pastor Greg said, uh, hi. And after a few moments, the guy says, do you have something for me? Can you even believe this conversation? Pastor Greg said rather firmly, no, I do not. The guy seemed really disappointed, but Pastor Greg couldn't resist. So he said, why? What were you looking for? He said, I was going to buy some drugs. Pastor Greg began to think that maybe God had directed him to that stall at that moment. Don't tell me that God doesn't have a sense of humor. 
he said, I don't have drugs, but I have something far better for you. And the guy seemed really excited, and he said, what? He said, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of somebody sharing the gospel like this before? There was silence, and then the guy said, oh, I already tried that. Pastor Greg said, really? Did you ever go to church? And the man replied, yes, I went to Harvest Christian Fellowship. (laughs) Talk about a divine appointment. Pastor Greg said, do you know who I am? I am Pastor Greg Laurie, the pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship. After a moment of silence, the man said, oh my gosh. Well, he didn't say gosh, but I'm saying it. Pastor Greg laughed and he said, buddy, God must really love you. And then he arranged to meet this man outside in the sock department where he led the man in a prayer to repent of his sins and to recommit his life to Christ. That's not the way I'm telling all of us to go out and share the gospel this morning. So how do we do it? It's important to understand that when we share our faith, we don't share the same with everyone in every circumstance. We need to realize that Even Jesus never dealt with any two people in exactly the same way. There is not a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. Let's look at a specific example of how Jesus himself shared the good news with one particular person. This is the woman at the well, and if you want to look it up this afternoon, it's in John chapter 4. But Jesus is going through Samaria because Jews don't normally go through Samaria. They go around Samaria. That means this was a specific thing Jesus was doing on purpose. The Jews and the Samaritans despised each other because the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds really more religiously than physically. And Jesus went to Jacob's well at the hottest part of the day, specifically to meet a woman who would only go there at the hottest part of the day because she couldn't go when most women went because she was a social outcast. She had made many terrible decisions in her life. She didn't know the scriptures. She was a social pariah because she had been married and divorced five times and was living with a man that she wasn't even married to. Jesus didn't throw the book of the law at her about her sins, yet neither did he condone her sinful choices. He reached out to her in a way that no one ever had before. He specifically reached out to her not because of her potential, but because she was a burned out, hurting woman who needed God desperately. His questions moved the topic from a thirsty traveler asking for something to drink to her desperate spiritual thirst for a relationship with a loving, forgiving God. But before he got to that point, the woman tried to engage in a spiritual debate with Jesus. Jesus responded by turning her theological argument into a spiritual point, and then he waited to see her response. What we would say he did was he threw out the bait, and then he waited to see if she would bite. How can we throw out the bait? You could mention that God answered a prayer or tell how God has blessed you. You could say how amazing it is that the Bible has predicted so many things that are actually happening right now. You could ask someone if anyone has ever told them that there is a God in heaven who loves them. 
Now, sometimes your statement will simply be ignored. Or maybe somebody will say, what do you mean by that? But please remember this. Being armed with many memorized verses that you launch at somebody, or knowing clever answers and arguments to crush somebody's defenses, these tactics may win a debate and yet not result in somebody turning to Christ. They may even result in somebody being hardened to the gospel. Looking at the example of Jesus, notice that he didn't start his conversation with the Samaritan woman by saying, are you saved? Or did you know you're going to hell? He also didn't use the same approach with anyone, uh, with everyone, and neither should we. When you treat somebody like they are person B in your memorized plan of evangelism, you will most likely turn them off to hearing the important things that you have to share with them. Remember, no one has ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The gospel should be clearly, boldly, verbally, and lovingly shared with the person you are speaking to. Here's a good question. What about when it doesn't work? I'm sure many of you have heard this statement. It is our responsibility to share the gospel It is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict and convert people and don't confuse your job with the Holy Spirit's. I've had the joy and privilege of leading many people to Christ. I have also had the disappointment of having many, many more people say no when I have shared the gospel with them. Now that may not surprise you, but did you know that even Jesus had disappointments when sharing the gospel? In Luke 18, there's a story of a rich young man who came to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, I have never had anybody come to me and basically say, what must I do to be saved? That's the the fish jumping into the boat before you even throw out the bait. What did Jesus say? He reminded the young man of the Ten Commandments. Now, why would he do that? Is it because we can be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? I sure hope the answer to that question is no, because if we can be saved by keeping all of the Ten Commandments, then we're all in trouble. The commandments were not given to make us righteous, but to show us how unrighteous we are. They were given to open our eyes and to shut our mouths, according to Romans 3.19. Instead of admitting that he hadn't kept the commandments, the young man instead boasted that he had kept them all. Jesus ended that discussion by reminding his disciples and us that what is important for us to do, uh, impossible for us to do, God can do. In other words, we can't save ourselves, but God can save us. But back to my point, this young man walked away from Jesus sad, unrepentant, and unsaved. Remember that the next time you share the gospel with somebody and they don't respond. You didn't fail if you shared the gospel, and you were not responsible for that person's response. And even Jesus himself had people reject his message. Remember, the greatest rejection of all time has to be that of Judas Iscariot, who after living with Jesus and learning from Jesus for three years, betrayed the Son of God. Well, you've heard me use the word gospel and the phrase good news many times this morning. And I can't let you go this morning without making sure that you have a clear understanding of what those words mean. 
is probably the most important part of what I have to say this morning. First of all, the word gospel literally means good news. Now, obviously, if there is good news, there has to be bad news. And the bad news is that we have all broken God's commandments and we fall short of his standards. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many people say that I'm basically a good person or I'm certainly not a sinner. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin seems like such an old-fashioned word. What exactly do we mean when we say that all have sinned? And please don't assume that everybody that you talk to will understand what you mean when you say the word sin. They may assume that it's reserved for the ultra-bad stuff, uh, like speaking of serial killers or child molesters. But to sin simply means to miss the mark. Let me give you an example. If we were all to go out into the parking lot this afternoon and there was a pile of rocks sitting there, And we were told, everybody pick up a rock and you will be saved if you can throw it to the North Pole. How many of us can throw a rock to the North Pole? Nobody can, right? Now, some of us can throw it farther than other people, but that still doesn't mean that we accomplish the goal. Zig Ziglar once said, the good news is there is nothing we can do that is bad enough to keep us out of heaven. The bad news is there is nothing we can do good enough to get us into heaven. When someone protests and says, but I'm still a good person, don't try to convince them of how bad they are. Instead, you could say, I'm sure in many ways you are a good person, but there is this problem. You're not good enough to get into heaven. Heaven is not for good people. It's for forgiven people. Just one sin will keep you out of heaven. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. And that really is the bottom line of the gospel. It is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for all sinners and his resurrection from the dead that will reconcile us to God. I believe Romans 10, 9, and 10 sums up salvation perfectly. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Let me close with this final illustration. In the classic Russian novel, Eugene Onegin, a jaded aristocrat aristocrat Onegin meets an innocent young girl in the countryside. And that girl, whose name was Tatiana, writes him a letter offering him her love. Onegin didn't even reply to the letter. When they meet again, he turns her down, saying that although her letter was touching, uh, he said that he would soon get bored being married to her. Years later, Onegin enters a St. Petersburg party, and he sees a stunningly beautiful woman. It's Tatiana. But now she's married. Onegin falls in love with her and tries desperately to win her back, but Tatiana refuses him. Once the door was open, and she offered him her love, Now it is shut. For many of us, it's easy to reject Jesus now. Like Tatiana's letter to Onegin, his offer is touching. But we believe that we will be happier without a commitment to God. We worry that God will cramp our style, so we move on with life. 
and we leave him in the spiritual countryside. One day, the Bible warns, we will see Jesus in all his glory, and our eyes will be painfully open to his majesty. And we will know in that moment that our greatest treasures were nothing compared to him, and we will bitterly regret the decision that we made. But it will be no more unfair than Tatiana's rejection of Onegin. If we accept Jesus now, we will live with him forever in a fullness of life that we can't even imagine. If we reject him, he will one day reject us, and we will be eternally devastated. The choice is ours. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are so thankful that you have made salvation a gift that there is nothing that we can do to earn it, and therefore it is just accepting your free gift of salvation. Father, I pray that you would, uh, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in you, that, that we would not be content to just live without telling other people about you, that we would begin each day by asking you to give us opportunities to open our eyes to see them, and to give us the courage to open our mouth when we have those opportunities. For those who have not yet turned to you in repentance, Father, I pray that this would be the day that they would come to you and say, I cannot live my life on my own. There is no way that I can please God without Jesus' work on the cross for me. And Father, we do, uh, as Pastor Chen prayed this morning, We lift up the people of Afghanistan for, first of all, for those who are believers and for the pastors and the missionaries, that you would protect them and that they would see that uh, a life given to you is worth it, even if it ends in a way that we would not want. But Father, we pray that you would spare them and allow them to bring others to you. Father, for those American citizens and the interpreters who have worked with them, Uh, We pray for a safe exit. And Father, for those that we would consider our enemies, for those who persecute, Father, we even pray for them because you have told us to do so. We pray that you would open their blinded eyes, that they would see that the way they are following is false, and to see the love of Christians around them and come to you in repentance. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.